1: Welcome to Spark.
0: We tell true stories.
1: We tell them live.
0: And we tell them across the UK. Last month, we invited back a number of storytellers. As part of the first Tell It Festival, celebrating the UK's true storytelling club.
2: Here's one of our favourites. This is Charlotte. In 2000, I was studying literature at Sussex University For those of you that don't know it, it was then, and I think still is now, a very left-wing establishment. So we studied a lot of theory, um, a lot of Freud and feminism and Marxism. The campus is a very groovy 60s, modernist, smoke-glass, concrete affair, which most people think is pretty ugly. But I loved it. In fact... I loved every single thing about Sussex, especially the fact that they encouraged every single student to take one year and study abroad, um, which was how I found myself in my third year enrolled at a university in Chile. And a month before I was due to leave, I received the papers about the university I would be studying at, and my new university was the Pontificia Universidad Católica de Chile, the papal Catholic University of Chile. (laughs) I turned up at my new campus to find a white marble colonnaded building with fountains and gardens and in front a huge statue of the Pope. My student representative told me that I was free to choose any course I liked, but she said there is one course in particular Pensadores del Siglo XX, great thinkers of the 20th century that I encourage you to take. She said, it's in the law department, but it's not a law course. It's run by Professor Gonzalo Rojas Sanchez, and he's incredible. Before the course started, I received a book that had extracts from the speeches and writings of the 30 greatest thinkers of the 20th century. I opened the book, and inside... There was no Freud, no Foucault, no feminists. Actually, come to think of it, there were no women. There were 28 Catholics, five priests, a Pope, and four card-carrying members of the fascist party. The first essay I had to prepare was Juan de Nosa Cortes's In Defense of Dictatorship. His argument goes, dictatorship is a moral phenomena. Revolutions are not caused by the rising of the poor by the but by the overreaching of nobility or middle classes. Essentially, a dictator arises to defend society and he concludes, was not God himself the first dictator re-establishing order after Adam's rebellion? I turned up to my first class with a heavy heart. It was in a beautiful, actually, wooden panelled law auditorium full of very nervous-looking law students in suits and a couple of unlikely goths that I went and sat next to. Uh, Professor Gonzalo Roca Sanchez came in. He was a short man. He looked like he didn't quite know how to dress himself. He had a suit with a bobbly jumper on top and very unkempt hair. But he stood at the front and he put the book down <clears throat> and he said... This is how this course will work. Each week, we will take a great thinker and together, we will tear him apart. I want you to challenge these arguments and see if they can defend themselves. I don't care if you agree with them or disagree. I want to know that you understand while the argument works. And that week, And for the following 30 weeks, I was treated to the most astounding lesson in intellectual dexterity. He was dazzling. He was sharp and precise and charming and funny and provocative and a bit scary. I I used to look forward to his classes, and I really looked forward to the one-to-ones that we would have, and he would say, Charlotte, put aside your left-wing bias for a moment and just see why this argument is powerful. And he liked me, his English literature student. He said he had a huge fondness for English stories because nothing ever happens. (laughs) On the last week of the course, he invited us all to bring um, some food and a song so that we would all get to know each other better. I was in my flat and I'd baked a cake and I was wrapping up the cake when my flatmate came in and... uh, It's another story but he was a famous rock drummer and he was a little bit uh, about me studying at this university uh he was Chilean and he was saying oh is that for one of your classes and I said actually yes it is it's for an incredible class I'm doing with a professor Gonzalo Rojas Sanchez and as soon as the words left my mouth he grew so still you know who he is right the ironclad defender of Pinochet. Now, at that time, I'd been living in Chile for nine months, so I knew something about Pinochet's 17-year military dictatorship. I knew that thousands of people had disappeared, but it had only been 10 years since it had finished at that point, so people generally did not talk about it. So I didn't know how the regime had worked. I didn't know that immediately after the coup, Pinochet ordered his commanders to round up 90 of his political opponents, many of whom had handed themselves in, and ordered his commanders to gouge out their eyes and break their jaws and their legs and then shoot them in the genitals and the heart. And any commander that did not do that were tortured and imprisoned themselves. I didn't know that the political genocide extended not just to his opposition, but their families. Thousands of people were murdered. 30,000 tortured. Pregnant women were thrown out of helicopters. And you could still see that when you walked in the street. If a helicopter passed over, people visibly flinched. And I didn't know that the constitution that put Pinochet in power and removed the rights of those political prisoners and banned parliament and suppressed freedom of speech, that that constitution was written by a group of thinkers, an ideological flowering called the Guildists, from the University Catolica under Jaime Guzman and his best friend, my professor, Gonzalo Rojas Sanchez. I didn't know that. I ate my cake and sang my song. And when I went back to Sussex, I got a first from the University catolica I'm nearly done. Um, he's writing a book. Well, he's writing the definitive history of Pinochet at the moment, Sanchez Rojas. And on his website, he says, there was no coup. There was a right of rebellion, because certain sections of society supported him. and. He was not officially a dictator because he still had the Supreme Court in place. And did he know what his secret service were doing? By definition, it's a secret service. I learned a lot of things from that man and it still makes me profoundly uncomfortable. But the biggest lesson I learned was how easy it is to use logic and charm to make unpalatable arguments seem entirely reasonable and how easy it is to be charmed. Thank you. That was Charlotte. You can hear another of her stories on the Spark Encore episode, Tales of Bad Calls.
0: This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile.
1: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
2: Help support this podcast and expand your mind by signing up for a free Audible 30-day trial today.
0: But Audible don't just do audiobooks. They do original audio drama. Like Alien, Out of the Shadows. Based on the Alien movies... This original story is by the director of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Alien Out of the Shadows is available now for free as part of a 30-day trial. Go to audible.co.uk forward slash spark and download it now.
2: This next story is by Margaret.
1: Good evening, everybody. Uh, You're a storytelling audience, so you'll have heard something like this before. I had a fucked up mother. She was very fucked up. She had Crohn's disease. She was in a lot of pain. And in the United States, we don't have the NHS, so when you need prescription medication, you go to the doctor. She had five, up to five doctors at a time. And when she had her prescription pain medication, she was great. She would swan around the house going, woo, Or sometimes she'd be asleep in bed. And if she didn't have her prescription pain medication, she was extremely angry. Now, on the other side of the table, I was a fucked up kid, okay? So, if you were doing a diagnosis of a kid like me, in this day and age, you would give a diagnosis of Asperger's Syndrome. But, um, when I was growing up, I didn't know anything about any diagnosis. All that I knew was that any social interaction was a little bit like putting a pound into a fruit machine. Sometimes you would get a jackpot, and sometimes you would strike out and get a stinging social rebuke. But I knew there was one thing that I could do to please the adults around me, and that was to write. You know, I could go off to my room and take a half an hour and write a short story or an essay or a poem and come back and find my authority figure of choice and read the poem or the short story or the essay to them. They'd be very pleased with me. And I remember many times when I had fallen out with my nuclear family where I would pick up the phone and call my grandparents in Toronto and I would say to them, I have something to read you. And I would read it to them and they would say to me, That makes my heart sing. Now, I grew up, I got to 14 years old, honing, practicing my writing all the time. My mother passed away. It was very sudden, and unfortunately, I'm guilty to say that the first thing that went through my head was that old dictum from the Wizard of Oz, ding-dong, the witch is dead. I'm sorry, it's true, it's true fact. Um, This let me off the lead, in a way, and I went out to poetry readings. Uh, You know, I drank things I shouldn't have drank, smoked things I should not have smoked, and screwed people I should not have screwed. Uh, Good grades uh, account for a lot, and they certainly did for me. I graduated high school, went to university, left university, and then I found my way across the ocean to the United Kingdom, where I took up work in politics because I wanted to make my family happy. And enough 80 and 100 hour weeks after several years led me to a nervous breakdown, so I moved as far away as I could to the southwest of the UK to Cornwall which is a beautiful place, but there's not a lot of work. And after three years of very marginal employment in the tourist industry, I threw up my hands and I said, Fuck it! I'm going to be a sex worker! Because I had all of my personal private experience, my hobby, as it were, having interesting sex, kinky sex with all kinds of people. And I thought, You know what? I'm going to make this work for me. And I'm going to make some money out of this. And so I did. And after about a year, I had had enough experience that I was supporting myself, and that gave me the confidence to do two important things, one of which was to marry my lovely husband, Bob, who was sitting here in the audience tonight, around in the middle there. He drove me here all the way from motherfucking Plymouth in Devon, four and a half fucking hours, okay? Yes, thank you very much, Bob. And the other thing it gave me the confidence to do was to write. To pick up my pen again and write. Not because of the nature of my work, but because it was work. Because I was earning a living with my own wit in my own hands. And so I got lots of essays in various columns, national columns and national newspapers in the US and the UK, but I couldn't tell my family about a word of it because all of it was from the perspective of a sex worker. And so, about a couple months after the wedding, I got a phone call from my grandparents, begging me and Bob to go to Toronto so they could meet him, so they could see him. And that was actually a bit of a thought, a bit of a decision for us, because it's not trivial for a sex worker to cross the border, because you can land on the UK and the uh, United States border and the Canada border, and people will accuse you of having trafficked yourself. Quite literally, I'm not making this up, I wish I were. So I had to shut down all my advertisements, I had to put my Twitter on private, and I had to restore my phones to factory settings. And I landed, I landed down there in Toronto, I went through the border, I went through customs, my heart was pounding in my chest, but I got through, partly because of luck, but mostly because of my motherfucking white privilege, okay? You know, as an English-speaking white woman. And as we went in the rental car towards my grandparents' flat, I connected back to the internet, and I downloaded onto my phone my portfolio, my best writing. And that phone, with my portfolio, lay like a stone in my pocket, made out of silicon and coltan, echoing the stone that weighed down my tongue, keeping my words inside me. Because when my grandparents opened the door, I saw in their eyes that the light had gone out. I saw that there was no heart left to sing. We spent three days there. And over many breakfasts and dinners, they asked me the same questions over and over again. Are you happy? Yes, Grandma. Are you making a lot of money? Yes, Papa. We're doing okay. Are you still singing? Are you still writing? No grandma, no papa. Last night that we were there, we watched the television, huge television, with the sound turned all the way up for a half an hour of CNN, looking for 30 seconds of my sister being on, celebrating a victory, a political victory in her work. And we saw it, and I was very proud of her. But the stone weighed down in my pocket and on my tongue because I could not tell them about my own success. And we got back on the plane, and we went back to Heathrow and back to Plymouth carrying my stones, carrying them. And a few months later, I got a telephone call from my sister who said to me, I'm having a baby. She said, I know about your work, as Margaret Corvid." I approve of it. You can do it now, right? It's good. I got her stamp of approval. There you go. Yeah, that. So I was very polite about it. She said, though, don't tell anybody else in the family. And so I have not done so. And there my sister sits with her new baby on her lap and her toddler on her knee being bounced. And there my father sits in upstate New York and he tucks his forelocks under his baseball cap and stands up and unlocks the door and goes out to walk the dog. And there my grandma and my grandpa sit, watching the TV and wondering, am I going to be okay? And I cannot tell them. But the lesson that I have learned is that it is okay Because if I want to honor them and all of the teachers who have taught me everything I know about writing, every character, every syllable, every word, forced it into my head, my tired, lonely, anxious head. If I want to honor those people, I do not need their approval or their cheers or their hurrahs. I do not need to tell them about a word of it. What I need to do is to write for myself, honoring myself, and as myself, because the trophies on the wall are not what matters. What matters is the thrill of the chase, of the hunt. And I know that if I want to honor them, all I need to do as the lights finally flicker and dim and go out in their eyes, is to write. Thank you very much. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to Spark True Stories. If you love what we do, please help us spread the word by leaving us a review
1: on iTunes.
2: For more true stories and to attend a live event, head to stories.co.uk.